Thank you for joining us for a new edition of the Pennsylvania Library Association's PA LaunchPod, the podcast that focuses on Pennsylvania libraries and the people who make them special. Every day in Pennsylvania, a librarian impacts the life of a child, family, student, job seeker, grandparent, or the guy next door. This is your opportunity to hear what is happening at a library somewhere in Pennsylvania, maybe even your hometown. This is Heidi Abby Moyer, one of your hosts of PA LaunchPod. Today on PA LaunchPod, we are speaking with David Runyon, university librarian at the Harrisburg University of Science and Technology in beautiful downtown Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Good morning, David. Good morning. Welcome and thank you for joining us today on the pot on our podcast. We're interested to learn more about the innovative work that you are doing at Harrisburg University and other projects that you have spearheaded at your library. First, please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to be at Harrisburg University. Sure. It was a bit of a journey for me to get here. Uh, I grew up in the Midwest and went to college at Laterno University in Texas. But after that, I went straight to library school at Pitt. I met my wife there. We got married, uh, and she's from this area, so we moved back to the capital, capital region. I worked in state government for about four years and then learned of this opening here at Harrisburg University. My combination of academic background, I know a little bit about science, a little bit of engineering, a little bit of psychology, and I also hold a master's degree in counseling from Shippensburg University. That combination of skills and background made me a pretty good fit for a young institution that needed folks who could do a lot of different stuff all at the same time. Uh, when I got started, I was the only library staffer here. Now we're up to me and another full-time librarian and a student worker. That's not <laughs> huge growth, but it's uh, more than double than what I started with. How long have you been the university librarian? I've been here for about seven and a half years. As many listeners might not be familiar with Harrisburg University of Science and Technology, could you tell us about how and when the university was founded and why? What are the programs offered, and what makes Harrisburg University so unique in central Pennsylvania? Sure. Harrisburg University was founded in 2001 to address the need for a university in Pennsylvania's capital region to prepare students for, for STEM careers in the area. The university opened in 2005 with a little over 100 students studying in five bachelor's programs and one master's program. A dozen years later, we have more than 5,000 students from 80 countries studying in 25 undergraduate options and eight graduate options. Our programs include undergraduate concentrations in cybersecurity, e-business, geospatial technology, integrative sciences and nursing. We have undergraduate and graduate programs in analytics, biotechnology, computer science, interactive media and design, and graduate concentrations in healthcare informatics, information systems engineering and management, learning technologies and media systems, and project management, and we just started up a doctoral program in analytics and data sciences. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say you have over 5,000 students now? Did yes, I hear you do. correctly? Yes. Wow, that's a lot. Do you offer online exclusive classes? We do have online only programs. We have blended programs online and in person, and we have programs that are entirely in person. Our undergraduate options are primarily in-person, and we've recently started offering uh, mostly online programs in the undergraduate area. 
Our graduate programs are primarily blended or online. How many of the 5,000 students are actually undergraduates? About 20% of that 5,000 are undergraduate students. We're, so we're largely in the graduate space. Wow, that's very impressive in such a short amount of time. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit more about your physical as well as digital collections, the size of the library, some of the highlights, and um, any other unique policies or practices that you have at your library? Sure. So because of our, our heavy online academic programs, uh, we're primarily a digital library. We have about 4,000 physical items, which includes uh, your typical books and periodicals, but also uh, also our board game collection. Our digital offerings are thousands of ebooks and journals, other online resources that you'd expect from an academic institution. Would you say that there's any particular policies or practices that are unique to Harrisburg University? We've implemented a a no late fines program. It's too much to take care of, and it doesn't really change things. It just ends up putting up a barrier between our students and the resources that they need. Of course, if they take a take an item and never bring it back, we ask them to uh, to pay a replacement fee for that. But that se- that seems to be fair and not punitive like a, a late fee would be. Of course, if a student has an item that somebody else needs urgently, then we might consider kind of doing a recall late fee. But at this time, we haven't had a lot of demand for that. Can you tell us a little bit more about the physical library that you have? For example, am I correct that you're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week? That's correct. Uh, because we're, uh, we have key card access to the facility, our students can enter and leave the library whenever they need to, which means that we have, we have this fantastic advantage that our information resources, whether physical or digital, are always available to our students. The trick, though, is that the library has also become something of an, an informal student union. Uh, a lot of our students will come to the library to eat lunch or to play video games to, between classes, just to hang out, talk on the phone. So it has a very different feel than the hushed and hallowed halls that you'd find at maybe more traditional or older institutions. We're not staffed for those 24, uh, 24 hours a day, which is another another drawback, but we're trying to grow our staff to, to meet the demand of our students and find that, that right balance between a full-time professional and a student worker and maybe a callback later. How on earth do you serve 5,000 students with only three staff? <laughs> uh, it's, it's a stretch sometimes. Uh, the, the growth of the, of the university has been very rapid. Not just the library, but many departments and offices throughout the institution are looking at what we need to do so that we can provide those opportunities for our students. Because our students are primarily online, though, we can offer services asynchronously or fill in an an email instead of a, a longer personal interaction. There are arguments to be made about whether or not that uh, is better or worse than sitting down with somebody, but when your student is three continents over, that may not really be a viable option anyway. Can you tell me a little bit about all the different hats that you wear? You clearly wear many, um, but you mentioned in an earlier conversation that we were having that you are also leading the textbooks for the Mm. library and that you're really a textbook source here in the library. 
In addition to my role as the university librarian, I'm also the textbook manager for the institution. We don't have an on-campus or official in-person bookstore. We use a, an online digital vendor, but all of those records have to be maintained so that the students know which textbooks to buy and get the, the correct materials. I'm the go-between between the faculty and our, um, our bookstore portal, and then the students get their materials there. What that means is, in addition to making sure that all of our library resources are accessible, I have to ensure that all of our textbook records for all six of our semesters every year get uploaded in a, a reasonable amount of time so that our vendor can stock and supply those materials. And I have to, of course, make sure that I stay up to date with what the faculty are doing as editions go out of print and as new editions are released or as new instructors are brought onto courses uh, and decide that they want to change the textbook or change the materials or add a book or you know, these three books are ridiculous. I don't know why they had three. We need five. Uh, <laughs> and working through all of those challenges is, I guess, another hat that I wear. Yeah, you have a lot of hats. <laughs> <laughs> um, in addition to what you just mentioned, um, can you tell us about the iLead project that you're a participant with, an instructor, and a mentor with? Sure. What is iLead? Uh, the iLead program was concocted by a, a group of folks out in Illinois stands for Innovative Librarians Educate and Discover, I think. I'd have to look it up exactly, but uh, I think that's pretty close. Similar to some other uh, library professional development opportunities, the, the iLead program was an intensive year-long project. So similar to, to what you're doing with the PALS program, at the, the beginning we would take a team of four to six librarians from Pennsylvania somewhere and set up a project, look at what the needs are in our communities, and work over the course of that year, really more like nine or ten months, to bring that project to fruition. We would meet in person a few times during the year, and then finally at our last meeting we would present our projects. We had the, the support of the Pennsylvania Department of Education. Uh, the Secretary of Ed came over and we got to give our pitches to him. So that was really a highlight for us. Pennsylvania participated uh, the last three years. And the first year, the year that I was a participant, we were alongside several other states and we were meeting at the same time. So I could be watching a presentation here in Harrisburg and be on Twitter with librarians in Ohio and Utah and mm. New Jersey. I don't remember all of the, all of the participants. But we, could, we would all be sharing the same presentation and all be participating together. So kind of a, a distributed conference mm -hmm. in a way. Uh, the second year, when I was uh, asked to, to be a, an instructor, uh, Pennsylvania went it alone. The other states, particularly Illinois, were having budget issues and weren't able to sustain the program. But then last year, a couple other states joined with Pennsylvania to, to run iLead again. For 2018, the Office of Commonwealth Libraries decided not to, uh, not to continue with the iLead program for this year, but look at how we could, how they uh, could include more librarians from around the state and maybe run it on an every other year basis. So providing more opportunities for librarians to connect with their communities and work together to solve interesting or even particularly 
challenging problems instead of holding up in our offices and trying to figure it out ourselves working with a team and maybe coming up with something that's greater than the sum of our parts great it's very interesting um if someone wanted to learn more about iLead is there a website that you could recommend I'd have so to just, check. okay just probably iLead.org or something but it's that's okay a fair guess uh <laughs> contacting the office of commonwealth libraries would be a good start oh, okay uh, great they have links to a number of the presentations that we viewed uh, as well as being the, the folks that organized it so they could tell you maybe what's coming down the pike for for iLead in Pennsylvania. Oh, great. I'm sure librarians can Google it. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the main reasons we wanted to interview today, David, for Pennsylvania Launchpad is to learn more about the board game collection in your library. Can you tell us about the board game collection and what inspired you to create it? And also, what are some of the unique features of the collection and who uses it and why? That's a lot of, <laughs> That's a lot of a questions. A lot of questions in that question. <laughs> Our board game collection consists of approximately 150 titles. Uh, I think there are probably quite a few more that we just haven't put in the catalog yet. Yeah, some was, in your office here. <laughs> I was doing a count this morning, uh, and I think I have 40 games here in my office. Most of those are not in the catalog yet. I hope most of them <laughs> will be someday. Uh, so maybe 150 plus 40 more. But it's a primarily analog tabletop board game collection. We have some titles on uh, on iPad. We have some uh, video games as well in a sort of a parallel collection, but neither of those resources are used very much. The tabletop collection gets a fairly steady usage uh, supporting our interactive media program. So undergraduate students primarily looking at going into entertainment design or game design and development are working with our with our tabletop collections to learn the principles of game design. Uh, a tabletop game gives you the chance to take something out or put something in that you don't have with, with an electronic video game. I can't just unscrew the cover of a PlayStation and throw a new weapon into Call of Duty or <laughs> create new fantasy players. That'd be cool a, though, wouldn't it? Game. It would be fantastic. Uh, <laughs> But with a board game, I can do that. I can scribble something up on a piece of paper. I can write a new card for a game, stick it in, see what happens. Is it still fun? Is the game still interesting? Is it better? Or did I make it worse by adding something? What if I take something out? Uh, what if I just rename all the properties in Monopoly so it looks like my hometown? It doesn't really make it a better game, but it might make it more interesting. So when I, when I started here at Harrisburg University, I play games as a hobby but uh, didn't have didn't see resources in the library that supported our interactive media program so we have chemistry books and biology books and computer programming books but nothing really solid about game design and development and i thought well we gotta do something start somewhere so i put a proposal together and sent it up to our administration said i'd like to put this in our budget as a recurring item so i started with $300 a year, and it's amazing what you can do even with that much. I asked for donations from game publishers and game designers, got quite a few, and then I've just been building that collection over time. The collection has gone into several of our game design courses. I ended up creating a, a course in board game analysis and teaching that primarily with the with the board games that we have in our collection here. 
I've since passed that course on to another instructor, but uh, we've used those materials in other classes across, uh, across the interactive media program, but also we're using some of those materials to inspire new methods of teaching in our general education program, possibly moving into uh, our science program uh, programs and looking at other ways to sort of harness that energy and harness those new ideas in a way that benefits not just the students who are studying games, but all of our students here at the university. One of the questions I asked you in my very long initial question was who's using the collection and why? So could you tie into also the response you've gotten from mm -hmm. faculty and students about the collection? Sure. So our interactive media faculty have been supportive and helped to help to support uh, me in the creation of the collection and also as I've pushed that collection back out into the classroom they've been welcoming to welcoming those materials into their classrooms which has been encouraging for me but also you know, beneficial for our statistics of yeah. course. <laughs> and the students have enjoyed it the students who I had the privilege of teaching in my game analysis class really enjoyed working with those games and I had students who were from the interactive media program and some who were just taking it as an elective. You know, I get to take a class where I play games most of the time. Fantastic. Uh, but of course asking them to think about that and look at their interaction with with a designed object whether it's on an aesthetic level or a mechanical level and then extrapolate that back out. Why do I enjoy what I enjoy for entertainment? I think that's beneficial for for students across many different disciplines so they they've enjoyed it and then the students who just grab stuff off the shelf when they're on their lunch break and say mm -hmm. hey let's let's play scrabble or let's right. throw throw down a game of chess every day and see who comes out on top so uh, they've really enjoyed that so they're using it as a a, a de-stressing mechanism mm -hmm. in some cases and mm -hmm. also as a social medium exactly. right to interact in face-to-face -face communication <laughs> right and the, I could probably talk longer than we have about how games can promote quick innovative thinking and improvisation and problem solving and critical thinking uh, interpersonal communication all of those things come into play in a, a safe environment in a game rather than when you're trying to interview for a job and you have to think think on your feet but if you've had some practice, maybe you'll be a little bit better at it. Very true. You've mentioned a class that you taught. Um, is it the same one that you're co-teaching that's based on role-playing game? Can you tell me more about that? Sure. Okay. I'm currently teaching a class called Simulating Global Crises, which is in our general education uh, sequence of courses. It's an elective for primarily junior and senior students, but we have a couple sophomores who have taken it as well. It's based around a semester-long simulation of an emerging crisis with global impact. So last year we, we had the students face an earthquake in the Caucasus region of Russia. We made our own, invented a, a fictitious country with a government and cities and everything that a country has, threw an earthquake in and then asked the students to role play as if they were a UN crisis response team. They did some fantastic stuff. The end of the course, we, we finished with a, a press conference and a, a peace summit as different international tensions had been ratcheted up by this crisis. And they, they did a fantastic job. Early on in the simulation though, 
some of those tensions were created by student actions as they students responded to an oil spill notifying or a cracked oil pipeline that was leaking into a river they notified the city on one side of the river hey your drinking water is contaminated you know be careful and then not saying anything to the ethnic minority villages on the other side of the river so they they paid for that mistake but they learned through it and that that specific story is one that those students have shared with each other and have told other classmates and other friends and it's something that they could use in a job interview. Tell us about a time when you messed up, you made a mistake. <laughs> Here's one. I could tell you about the time I created an international crisis uh, and solved it. So that's not a board game, correct? It's is it a, like a tell me tell me how that game actually works. What's sure. involved in creating that? It's it's built around a role-playing game framework. So anybody who's familiar with Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder, mm -hmm. similar games, mm -hmm. uh, would find some commonalities between that, between those games and the Sim Global system. Right now we're running it based on the Blades in the Dark role-playing game system, another role-play role play rule set. The students imagine their actions and they describe it to me. I, I work as the game master. We have, we have large maps three foot by four foot maps that we roll out on the table so the students get a feel for the place mm -hmm. and they can mark, okay, here's the capital city. Here's where we're dropping off supplies. Here's where the people are and here's where they need to get. Mm -hmm. And here are the roads that are open or the ones that have been closed by a landslide. So there are elements of tabletop interaction, but primarily it's discussion based. Tell me what you want to do. Tell me the problem that you're trying to solve and how you think you're going to solve it. Well, it's fascinating. It's so interdisciplinary, too. I can mm -hmm. see so many uses for that in a variety of contexts. Uh, speaking of which, I know that you've done a partnership with the U.S. Army War College in Carlisle. Can you tell us about the tabletop matrix training games and your collaboration with them? Oh, they're right over there. <laughs> I'm sorry, our listeners can't see all the games, <laughs> but you can describe them. Sure. So we've been working with the, with the War College for a little over a year and a half helping to, to play test and then facilitate their, uh, their matrix tabletop exercises. Some of, the, some of the officers are uncomfortable with calling them games, but uh, <laughs> tabletop exercise seems to be a neutral enough term that they're happy with it. These, these games are serious games. They're not uh, something that you would pull out at a family Thanksgiving, but something that we're using to train our military officers. The, the basic rundown for the matrix games is you have a, a map or some kind of layout of a region of the world. You have different countries or different non-state entities represented. I know they've drafted several that have war on terror elements. So you have mm -hmm. different terrorist organizations or you have different political factions in an unstable country. Mm -hmm. The US military, it's a, it's a war fighting organization, but it's also a peacekeeping organization. Ideally, we're ready to fight and don't have to. Mm -hmm. So the Matrix game that we worked on last year was a South China Sea scenario, looking at Chinese territorial claims, the Philippine Islands, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam. These different countries have overlapping territorial claims. The United States has been interested, particularly over the last five or 10 years, in extending our, our participation in the Pacific. So the South China Sea scenario asked us 
ask the players, and we participated in testing, facilitating the exercise, ask the players to participate as different countries, working in teams, usually of two to four players per team. So China would have four players and Indonesia would have three and so on. How they would use the tools of diplomacy, information, military, and economics to achieve their objectives. There's no reason why these countries can't reach a compromise, but compromise can be difficult. Working together, taking military officers who have been trained with artillery deployments and maybe aerial surveillance, asking them to add in these other elements of diplomacy or managing an information campaign or using economic stimulus or incentives to get other nations to the bargaining table or to say maybe you don't want to you don't want to fight with us let maybe we can find a way to to cooperate and resolve these competing claims in a peaceful way so the game asks the each of the players to state an action why they think it'll succeed and then the other players all argue back whether they think it'll succeed whether their nation would support it or reject uh, we're not going to participate in your stupid conference why they think it would succeed or fail and then the the facilitator makes a ruling about how hard that would be the player rolls the dice and works with the outcome and then play proceeds it's really an open-ended scenario so you could run it for two hours or you could run it for two days hmm. but still practicing that quick decision making negotiation communication and strategization Wow, what a wonderful collaboration. And that's great that the Army War College is so close by that you can do that. Mm -hmm. So what advice might you offer to other librarians or libraries that want to create their own game collection? What about active learning with games? Or what are some other best practices and resources that you might recommend? Sure. The advice that I would start with is to start small and do your homework. Don't just rush out to, to Target and <laughs> buy, the, buy the six things that have the most stickers on them. If you don't know what you're doing, you're gonna end up with resources that people won't use. Or challenges for yourself as you try to drag people into a game that isn't really very much fun. So figure out what you're trying to accomplish first. And then as I, as I mentioned earlier, I operate my game collection on about $300 a year, which for a really small library could be a challenge, but for most libraries that's what? six, ten other resources, unless you're talking paperbacks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but in an academic context, $300 could be a single biochemistry textbook. Mm -hmm. look, for, look for donations. Many publishers are friendly to libraries. They understand that when people can try a game and learn it on a casual, low-pressure basis like you would have in a library, they're going to be more likely to buy their own copy. Mm -hmm. Just like with movies or with books, if you can try it, you might create a fan. You might mm -hmm. say, oh, this person's going to keep buying from us, and it drives sales. Mm -hmm. uh, I had students in who took my class. I taught them a Star Wars tactical game, and they went out that weekend, and three of my students each spent more that weekend than I had on that game. <laughs> Hundreds of dollars. It was crazy. Learning with games, look at those soft skills. Games are fantastic at that. I think there's a, there's a downfall in 
educating with games where an educational game doesn't educate very well and it's not very much fun so it falls short on both metrics but if you look at the things that the games do well and then build your lesson around that you'll have a much higher rate of success hmm. look at quality games there are numerous review sites personally i like shut up and sit down they have a podcast they have video reviews they have text reviews of board games and role-playing games and they're fantastic board game geek is another resource for anyone doing collection development this is the place probably the place to start they have rankings of thousands of games i think they're up to 20 or 30 thousand wow. individual game titles and you can see them ranked from number one eight or nine stars down to monopoly which is somewhere in the eight or nine thousands all the way down to things that no one has ever heard of and so they don't have any reviews <laughs> but looking at that the same way that you would do collection development for any other department look at your reviews look at the resources that are out there and collect with a purpose it's not just we, we need to fill up this much shelf space it's what am i going to do with these am i trying to do events and programming or am i trying to teach and educate with the the collection drive that i have here of supporting an academic program i want to buy games that demonstrate interesting design or have excellent elements that are worth worth emulating i'm not buying stuff that has the latest movie tie-in or <laughs> the sequel to the sequel to the sequel of something fantastic i want the thing that's going to teach the lesson which might be how certain types of games work or how to make how to tie art in with mechanics in a really solid way. That's all excellent advice. So I'm going to ask you the the, um, the question that probably most people want to know from a librarian, like what's your favorite book? But I'm going to ask you what your favorite board game is, if you have one. <laughs> <laughs> I have a I have a couple. Um, the the long format game that I that I like the most is the Battlestar Galactica board game. I think it's sadly gone out of print now, but you can still find copies in a couple places. But that's definitely one that's going to run you all afternoon and probably into the evening. <laughs> For a shorter game, I like the, the X-Wing Miniatures game. It's a Star Wars dogfighting. Uh, all of the, the various starfighters and spaceships from the Star Wars universe. Throw some down on the table and duke it out with your, with your pals. <laughs> and then for, uh, for a party game or a larger group game, Fun Employed is my go-to. Fun employed. Fun employed. Oh, I haven't heard uh, of that one. Improvisational job interviewing. Uh, <laughs> deal out a hand of cards. The cards are the skills on your resume, and they're terrible. You might have one dollar <laughs> and a peg leg. Try to figure out how you're going to be a police officer if those are your qualifications. But uh, you improv your interview, and then similar to other party games like Apples to Apples or Cards Against Humanity. Yeah. The person who interviews you decides whose interview they like the best and play until you stop having fun or until you have to go to sleep. Wow. Usually it's having to go to sleep. <laughs> like Monopoly going all weekend long. <laughs> Except Monopoly, maybe you never started having fun. <laughs> That's true. It ends in a fight, right? <laughs> so finally, David, uh, while leading the library at a newer university that focuses on science and technology, can you share with us any stories or experiences that really stand out as the most rewarding or perhaps even the most challenging during your career as a university librarian? Hmm. I think 
challenging is probably the right the right avenue as as we've discussed earlier i've got a lot of responsibilities and a lot of things that i have to keep my eyes on keeping up with that is an impossible task uh, i don't know how i've made it this long without the entire second floor of the building going up in flames but somehow we've avoided that <laughs> must be all your simulation games that you're doing <laughs> i hope so we've practiced for this <laughs> yeah uh, if there's ever a zombie outbreak yeah, we've got you're, it covered. you're covered i know where to go <laughs> um, but addressing that challenge is i don't know it's a it's a daily decision to to say i'm gonna do what i have to do and try to focus on on the important stuff that has to be done, not the things that other people tell me they want me to do now. I have to shrug off the things, some of the things that I really want to do, because there are things that have to get done. And that is a that is a challenge, and that is a struggle, but it pays off in the end. Do you have any other final words of advice or guidance that you might give other librarians who aspire to serve as leaders like yourself in their own libraries? I feel like I ought to say, learn to say no. Uh, <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, maybe learn to have fun, too. Librarians can be a little bit serious sometimes. We take our work seriously and we care about, about our patrons, our users, and our collections. But if you can find a way to make that interesting, maybe make a game out of it. You'll find that those daily struggles might not be quite so bad when you've got something to look forward to somewhere in that mix. Very well said. David, thank you again for taking some time, especially during the busy spring semester, to talk with us today on PA LaunchPod. The innovative work that you've done and continue to do at Harrisburg University, particularly with the amazing board game collection that you have, I'm sure will be very motivational for other librarians across Pennsylvania. On behalf of our listeners, thank you for encouraging us to embrace new ideas and curate new collections for the benefit of library users. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening. You can find our podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. For more information about this episode and how you could be featured on this podcast, visit palibraries.org slash group slash PA Launchpod. Remember, membership matters.